The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Partnerships, Changing the Game for Digital Transformation, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changer, you are in the right place. We always say it. We always say it. We always mean it. We know it's true. So let's see what the buzz on the street is. I have a quote here from BBC.com talking about the future. Let's see what's going on here. The quote is, the fusion of physical and virtual worlds into a cyber-physical system will have a disruptive impact on every element of manufacturing. Aha! And you're wondering, Bonnie, why in the world are you giving us that quote? Well, there's a couple of key words embedded in there. We're talking about manufacturing. We're talking about physical and virtual worlds. And we even have the words disruptive and cyber. I think it's a great quote. So let's see what this has to do with our topic today. The digital evolution, now I didn't say revolution, I said evolution, ongoing, continues to change how we as people connect, how we share, how we collaborate, and how we compete. And now digitally connected networks of suppliers and OEMs and procurement companies and businesses are enabling machines to do the same. Aha, now we get into the cyber world and we get into disruptive. At the heart of the new enterprise asset management paradigm, some of you refer to that as EAM, is the ability to exchange data between business entities and assets through end-to-end digital networks. So, how close are we to giving smart machines, yes, those are the only ones we really want involved in the processes, how close are we to giving smart machines the information they need, the information we need to give them, but let's add a ringer here, the information that we can trust they will use the right way. That's a loaded question. We have two very, very interesting experts on the panel today. Just two. They have a lot to share. Let me tell you who they are, and then we'll get started. First up, in just a moment, I will be introducing Peter Ainsley Hartwell. That's a hyphenated name. He is the Chief Technology Officer for Utopia, and in a couple of minutes, we will find out what they do. And joining him on the panel is Dean Fitt, he spells it F-I-T-T, member of the Global Enterprise Asset Management, there's EAM Solutions at SAP. So Peter Ainsley Hartwell at Utopia has sent me a quote from Thomas Edison. If you're very, very young, and very young, and you've never heard of Edison, Thomas Alva Edison, 1847 to 1931, uh, was an American inventor and businessman. He developed many, many devices that influenced life around the world. How about the phonograph? 
those of you out there who don't know what that is. It used to be called a record player. How about the motion picture camera? If you haven't heard of that, you might think of it as a video cam on your iPad or on your smartphone. And how about the long-lasting practical electric light bulb? Well, we have all variations of that. He was called the Wizard of Menlo Park. If you think that was just a few and he didn't do much, hold on. He held 1,093 U.S. patents in his name, as well as many in the UK, France, and Germany. That's enough. Look him up if you want more. Here's the quote from Thomas Edison. There is a better way to do it. Find it. Peter Ainsley Hartwell, welcome to Game Changers. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Bonnie. How are you today? Well, it's very kind of you to ask. I'm well, and I'm very excited to speak with you, and I love the quote. So let's talk about this. Our topic today, Peter, is, well, I didn't introduce the topic, but it's NBT, the next big thing in plant operations, intelligent machines, and networks. So what does Thomas Edison have to do with this? Well, as you said, Thomas Edison um, held a number of patents. He invented a number of things that we all take for granted right now in our everyday, everyday lives. And I think his quote about, there's a better way to do something, go find it, is very, very pertinent in the current uh, environment that we're in. Uh, we are on the, the precipice, I think, of a huge change happening in the way that we manage our assets um, and the way they look after themselves to some extent as well with the whole Internet of Things and smart sensors and so on. So I think we've got the opportunity now to find much better ways of doing what we've been doing for centuries as far as maintaining and looking after our equipment, uh, which in turn helps us operate our businesses better. So I think it's a very important um, aspect of what we're doing, that we're not stuck in the paradigm of we can only do things a certain way now. We now have opportunities mm-hmm. to do things much different ways. Very interesting. And, and Peter, not stuck and better ways. I'm, I'm very pleased that you brought up this quote because in my opening I talked about the digital evolution continuing evolution continuing Absolutely. i think that's probably probably redundant because an evolution is ongoing so uh, just tell me something whose job is it to find this better way in terms of what edison said is it yours is it dean's is it mine is it people who were ceos of manufacturing companies is it the uh, the shop floor managers the whatever you call them at at the manufacturing plants whose job is it to find the better way peter I think it's everybody's job. I think it's an interesting thing that uh, we all um, are familiar with technology nowadays. All of us have smartphones. All of us can do things that uh, years ago we didn't, we thought was science fiction, right? Um, Remember, for those of us that are old enough, the Dick Tracy with his, um, with his watch, with his watch phone. um, Now that's real life. You can go buy an Apple watch and do exactly the same thing. Um, So I think it's everybody's job now. We all are exposed to technology. We all get these ideas uh, about ways that we can do things better. So I think we can all take an opportunity to say, okay, if I can do this now, if this technology is available to me, how do we then uh, make use of that to make our jobs easier, make our jobs, make our lives simpler? Um, I think one of the interesting things is that uh, we shouldn't forget that people still run businesses um, and they are, mm-hmm. the point of technology is to make their lives simpler and easier, not to make their lives um, more difficult. Yeah. 
Thank you, Peter. Very, very interesting. We have so much to talk about with you, and thanks for joining me. And we'll be talking in a little while about what Utopia does. I love the name of your company. We have to find out how in the world you managed to get that as the name. So we'll talk in a few minutes. And now let me welcome our second guest. He is Dean Fid at Global EAM Solutions at SAP. Dean has brought us a quote from our most frequently or maybe second most frequently quoted source here on Game Changers. It's from Steve Jobs. And before I read the quote, let me just tell you, those of you who don't know, my goodness, Stephen Paul, Steve Jobs, 1955 to 2011. He passed away on October 5th that year, and that was the day we debuted Game Changers Radio. Very strange coincidence. He was the co-founder, chair, and CEO of Apple Inc., CEO and majority shareholder of Pixar Animation Studios, member of the board of directors of the Walt Disney Company following its acquisition of Pixar and on and on. He and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, who was a contestant on Dancing with the Stars not very successfully a few years ago, literally changed our lives. Great quotes from him. But Dean, before I read the quote, I have an interesting sidebar here. I learned the other day that uh, John Lennon's birthday was October 9th, which is yesterday, and his son, Sean Lennon, the son he had with Yoko Ono, who was born in 1975, was born on John Lennon's 35th birthday. Now, why am I telling you that, Dean, when I'm about to explain a quote from Steve Jobs? Because in January 1984, Steve Jobs was in Manhattan, and he attended a party Yoko Ono was throwing for her son, Sean Lennon. And you'll never guess what happened. Steve Jobs gave Sean Lennon one of the very first Macintosh computers. Oh, my. I bet. Dean, did you know that? Did you have any clue about that? No, not at all. Not at all. Neither did I. I have a radio show on Monday nights on a different channel where I interview authors, and I always started out with famous birthdays. And when I was researching the October 9th birthdays, I came up with this fact. I thought you would get a kick out of it. Now I'm ready to read the quote you selected. Here's the long version of the quote. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living the result of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of other opinions drown your own voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Dean, this is a beautiful quote. Thank you, Dean. How are you, Dean Fit? I'm doing good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Talk to me. You picked a wonderful Steve Jobs quote. The one you actually sent me was the first line, your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. So let's talk about, we're talking about manufacturing. We're talking about smart machines, smart networks. you got to connect the dots for me, Dean. How does this fit with our topic today? Yeah, well, um, I think what Steve Jobs did was take existing technology. Um, I mean, he made people... Like the iPad, for example, I think that had been around a while in different forms and no one thought they needed it, but um, you know, he, he kind of rejigged it and uh, I mean, look at it today. I mean, I think uh, he's also, I mean, if you look at the iPhone, for example, what's in there, the camera, I mean, I've just been on two weeks holiday and I mean... Never take a camera. I mean, everything is in there. Mm-hmm. Navigation system. So I was driving around Europe. Um, I mean, my brother from Australia was with with me. He was using all the navigation on his phone. Um, music, same thing, linked up to the speakers in the car. Um, and if if I look at my two children today, I mean, my son is more or less full time on on the phone, looking at 
mm-hmm. a different thing. So, I mean, uh, I think he's you know, taken things that have been around, uh, put them into this small box, um, and, and, and I guess most people today can't live without it. I guess so. Now, let's connect the dots to our topic of smart machines in manufacturing, Dean. What would Steve Jobs say about that in smart networks? Yeah, I think um, we're at the the beginning of this journey with um, smart machines. Again, I think um, things like condition-based maintenance and um, sensors have been around a long time. Um, but we're now starting to see this becoming, you know, very topical. Everyone wants to um, move from reactive maintenance, where I, where I think a lot of people are still stuck into um, using data to do prescriptive or, or predictive maintenance. So um, I guess that's guess it's, that's the link is that. What we're talking about today has been around a while, but it's kind of the perfect storm where everything is coming together now. Thank you very much, Dean. I like that perfect storm, and that goes with when I said uh, I was differentiating between digital revolution and evolution, and you mentioned up a perfect storm, and so maybe it is uh, we're on the verge of a revolution. I like that. Thank you, Dean. And now we're going to turn back to Peter Ainsley Hartwell at Utopia. Peter, I have a couple of close, up-close and personal questions for you, not too personal. I'd like to know where you're calling from. I know you're in a hotel somewhere. You don't need to give us the room number. That's okay. But what city are you in? And Peter, we'd love to know, what's your favorite drink and you're in a hotel I'm not so sure you're having it right now but what are you planning on later Peter go ahead okay so I'm actually sitting in um, Columbus Ohio um, at the moment I'm about to fly back to Chicago um, this evening uh, which is where I'm based Uh, so when it comes to drinks I'm probably a little bit strange I'm one of three Australians in the world probably that doesn't drink beer Um, (laughs) I think that I'm sorry, I, you caught me I, by surprise. You caught me totally <laughs> off guard there. Go ahead. Wait for the laugh. Okay, Peter, you yeah, can talk now. So, um, I, you know, it's like when I say that, I think uh, people look at me and say, okay, hand over your passport. You can't be Australian if you don't drink, if you don't drink beer. But I do drink alcohol, so um, I have a favorite drink, which is Drambuie, uh, which is mm. a Scotch liqueur in a, in a chilled glass, no ice. Right? And everybody that, run, that knows me well... Um, knows that that's my drink and uh, when I go to visit they have it they had three glasses in the freezer and uh, the bottle in there getting chilled as well but the funny story is I was at a restaurant in Hoofdorp uh, in the Netherlands um, and I walked in and I asked them for a Drambuie and they didn't have it and the owner said I don't have that I have this liquor 43 I think it was which was a Spanish liqueur so I had one of them and he said what is this Drambuie and I showed him a picture on my phone as Dean Mm -hmm. said everyone has the phone it was a quick google Drambuie here's the bottle Um, and I showed it to him he said oh thank you very much etc when I was there when I came uh, about two weeks later uh, I came back to the same restaurant and I walked in um, and I and he said oh I have your drink Uh, oh my he'd actually he had actually gone out and bought a bottle of Drambuie and uh, just in case I actually came back. Uh, but what was funny uh, was that the bottle was half empty. So I said, so, you know, it's half empty. And he said, oh, yeah. As soon as I got it, I had this group of six people came in, and they saw that I had it, and they actually started drinking it. So 
uh, it was interesting. He actually bought the bottle, and all of a sudden, uh, he's got clientele that want to drink it. So uh, I can I can take credit for introducing Grand Bui to that restaurant. You certainly can. And by the way, I think I warned you and Dean on our prep call the other day that I like to look things up. So I'm going to read a little background on Drambui. Is that okay with you, Peter? You don't mind, do you? That's perfect. Drambui is a golden-colored 40% ABV liqueur made from scotch whiskey, honey, herbs, and spices. The brand has been owned by the McKinnon family for 100 years, but was bought by William Grant and Sons just three years ago, 2014. It has been produced under contract at the Morrison Bowmore Distillers Facility at Springburn Bond, Glasgow, since 2010. And the name Drambui... Possibly, so this may be apocryphal, Peter, derives from a contraction of the Scottish Gaelic phrase Andram Budhich, the drink that satisfies, I probably butchered that, a claim made by the original manufacturers of the drink. Very interesting, yeah? Yeah, and I believe it was actually um, originally a blend that was only for the Scottish royal family, and then it was actually made available to uh, the rest of us. As a matter of um, fact, you're right. It goes back goes back to the 1880s. It was there was a recipe developed uh, from original brandy based to Scotch whiskey for friends of somebody named Ross. I'm trying to read the history here. Uh, John Ross in the late 19th century. His son ran the Bradford Broadford Hotel in Bradford on Skye, and it was he who began to experiment with the recipe for Brambui at the hotel. After 1879. Oh, my. A lot of interesting history here. Thank you, Peter. Yep. That was fascinating. Before I turn to Dean and find out what, where he is today, I'd love to know, what does Utopia do? Tell us, uh, give us about a minute and a half, a little intro, please. Yeah, sure. Um, Utopia focuses on data management, data governance, um, data quality. So we, we focus on helping organizations ensure that their data across their organization is uh, fit for business. And our biggest focus right now is around ensuring accurate um, asset master data. So making sure that the information that people are using uh, in their maintenance, um, planning and so on is accurate and they have the right spare parts and all that sort of stuff. So that's really what we focus on. Both provide uh, software um, and services uh, to organizations globally. Thank you very much. Nice to get to know you. And now let's turn to your colleague here on the panel, Dean Fed. Dean, we'd love to know where you're calling from. I understand we call you today, so where are you? And what's your favorite drink in the whole wide world? Dean, talk to me. Yeah, I'm uh, in Heidelberg in Germany. Um, I've been in Germany since 2001, originally from uh, Cape Town in, in South Africa, um, in terms of okay. drinks, yeah. I think I'm pretty boring, I would say. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe something I don't drink and I don't believe I've ever drank it is tea. I mean, I, I cannot recollect, recollect ever drinking tea. Just the, the smell when I lift it up kind of just totally turns me off. Um, I mean, otherwise... <laughs> okay, we're not going to ask you to drink tea. So what do you love to drink? Is there a <laughs> beer? Is there a wine? What do, you, what, do you, what do you drink when you go to a party? Um, uh, just, just beer. Oh, I've more or less given up beer as well, so uh, you know, just maybe a glass of wine. So Not a big drinker. Okay, so do you have I've a favorite... Pe- Pe- yeah, go ahead. I've been with Peter a few times, and it's interesting when you go into a restaurant... 
um, you know, around the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as he walks in, he makes sure that they put the glasses in the freezer, um, you know, stacks up uh, four of them getting ready. <laughs> Quite interesting. Very interesting. Do you have a favorite wine, Dean? You said occasionally wine, or do you? Is there a favorite soda, water, milk? Come on, we want to know something that makes you tick. What makes you smile, Dean? Fit. Come on, give me something here. Well, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, but African Sauvignon Blanc would be probably a favorite wine. Okay, we got it. Thank you very much. So, uh, and why don't you tell us, Dean, what you do at SAP? I have here that you're a member of the Global Enterprise Asset Management Solutions team. So, w- what is your role here? Yeah, I'm a uh, solution manager. So, um, on the asset management solutions, so we have a lot of asset management solutions, um, and. Um, I mean, the role is pretty varied, so from um, listening to customers and, and feeding that uh, um, feedback back into our development organization, so we, we get new developments done or coming up with totally new um, products and solutions, um, and then, you know, once they're developed, um, pushing that out to the market, telling customers all about it, um, what's new, um, that type of thing. So it's pretty varied and interesting role and um, yeah, taking me some interesting places around the world as well. Thank you very much Dean. I appreciate that and now let's go to our break. When we come back we're going to take a deep dive into our topic of the NB thing, next big thing in plant operations, intelligent machines and networks and we're really talking about this digital evolution that's changing how people connect but also changing how businesses talk to machines and vice versa and we're going to try to get to the the point of the conversation between Peter and Dean Fitt and myself about giving machines information is one thing giving them information they and we can trust that's another level we talk about trust on many of our shows and we're going to build that in so don't even think of touching that mouse that app that dial we will be right back Kevin out We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as more digitally demanding employees, customers, and partners, an increasing variety of digital devices, resource scarcity coupled with data abundance, and demand for innovation to help the world run better and improve people's lives. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how moving to the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Partnerships, Changing the Game for Digital Transformation is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Partnerships, Changing the Game for Digital Transformation, presented by SAP. 
Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to partnerships, changing the game for digital transformation. Yes, we are. The digital transformation is happening, and we're talking about the next big thing in plant operations, a.k.a. manufacturing. The machines are getting intelligent. The networks are getting intelligent. But what kind of information are we feeding them? Is it accurate? Is it going to do any good? That's the question on the table here. My special guests today are Peter Ainsley Hartwell at Utopia. He just told us about his company, and Dean Fitt at SAP Global Enterprise Asset Management Solutions. So we're going to kick off the roundtable in earnest, and I have a topic here we're going to start. Peter gave me the following. He says, technology alone will not ensure accurate data. It takes people, it takes process, and it takes technology. Peter, talk to us. Ah, thanks, Bonnie. Yeah, I think it's important that we don't lose, fact, uh, lose track of the fact um, that we all have jobs in our business. We all make decisions in our business. Um, and it is actually a combination of that people and the process and the technology that enable us um, to improve the way that we do uh, what we do in our, in our everyday lives, in our business lives. And I think a lot of people forget uh, that the people at the end of the day are still the people who are making these decisions and deciding this is the way we're going to go, we're going to go this way, we're going to go that way, um, as the case may be. We're going to make uh, an investment here, we're going to make an investment there. We're going to decide to do something or not do something based on the information that we have at hand. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people um, have information that they don't trust. And as soon as they don't trust the information, either they make incorrect or poor decisions, or worse still, um, they don't make any decision at all, uh, and they lose the opportunity possibly um, to make uh, a huge benefit, to to grab a huge benefit uh, from the information that they've got there. And I think the thing that's changing now um, is the speed at which the, this information comes to us and the speed at which we are requested to make decisions. Um, in the good old days, bad old days, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, we used to get information and it would go through five hands and people would put it through an Excel spreadsheet and they would massage it and they would change it and they would do all sorts of things to it, right? And you've got a chance to filter out the rubbish, you got a chance to filter out the stuff that didn't make sense. you got a chance to say, oh, that doesn't quite look right. Uh, let me go and check that before I give it over and before we make a decision. Nowadays, you're getting this stuff streamed live to your smartphone and someone's expecting you to make a decision there and then. You don't get a chance anymore to filter out the rubbish, to filter out the crap. You gotta go, you've, you're actually making, making use of the information in real time. I think that's the big change that's happening with this whole Internet of Things, with uh, smart machines, etc. Uh, we're getting information that we have to trust. And if we don't trust it, um, then we're, we're falling behind. We're falling behind the game. And I think that's why it's important that uh, we use that combination of people, people who have the knowledge, that understand what the machines are, what this information is supposed to mean, um, the process that says, okay, how are we gathering it? How are we interpreting it? Uh, what are we doing to filter it? And then, of course, the technology, which says, okay, well, which information can we gather um, you know, using smart sensors and so on uh, and so forth? So I think that's where this whole combination of the three needs to be merged. It needs to form uh, 
that uh, ecosystem that enables us uh, to trust the data that we're given and to be able to make decisions uh, based on that. Um, so I think that's really the, the, the crux of it, that it's, uh, it's a combination of things uh, that make this a successful um, enterprise, yeah? Thank you very much. Great intro to that topic, Peter. Dean Fit, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Agree or disagree with what Peter said? Yeah, I mainly agree. I think um, the customers we've spoken to, um, they typically, um, they still rely on the human um, to make the final decision. So the person that knows the machine has worked with that machine for 15, 20 years. Uh, so they're not just letting algorithms um, automatically um, do something. They basically have the final say is done by a human. And I'm not sure that that will go away soon. So, Dean, talk a bit about those algorithms. It's the people who create the algorithms. So where do we get the input from a human being into that process? Uh, trusting the people, as, as Peter was saying, it still comes down to people. People still run businesses. So what's your thought on how do, how do we get people as part of the process if it's all supposed to be automated? Where do the people come in? Well, I think you can think about your um, navigation system. I mean, if you, if you rely 100% on your navigation system, I mean, I've had experience of that over the last couple of weeks that it's not always taking you in the, in the best, best route or even the right place. So I think uh, you always need to have a human looking at it. Uh, I mean, the algorithms as well need to be um, trained um, so that, that also takes time and, and, and they cannot cater for every single um, thing. I think all the different combinations of parameters and conditions that, are, that, are, that the equipment might be operating in or operating with. So I think there will always be that, that human um, intervention or... or kind of high-level supervision, if you like. Okay. Thank you very much, Peter. Let me toss it back to you. What do you think about that high level of human supervision? Do you agree with Dean? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one. We keep on talking about smart machines, um, but we've got a lot of dumb machines out there as well, right? We've been running businesses for hundreds of years. There's still factories out there that run machines that literally have been there for um, a century. Uh, in fact, the very first job I got when I left um, university was in a sugar mill um, in Queensland in Australia, and we literally had steam engines that were over 100 years old running in the factory. They weren't very smart, right? They were dumb, right? Um, and we keep on sort of talking about all smart machines, smart machines. Right now, I think we have a hybrid where a lot of the smarts are actually being done with sensors that we're placing on dumb machines, Right? And the sensors are telling us about pressure readings, flow, rating, flow, me, flow, flow rates and all that sort of stuff. But unless the sensor, uh, unless you know exactly what machine that sensor is on and you can actually understand what information that sensor is providing about that particular machine and how that uh, information relates to the operation of the machine, you're going to make some poor decisions. Right? And all of the smart algorithms that Dean was talking about, this machine learning and all that sort of stuff, they learn. And, and it's like our kids, right? 
if you if your kids grow up and you keep on saying talking about films, right? Eventually, the kids will start talking about films instead of talking about films, right? And these algorithms are the same. They learn what you feed them. If you feed them rubbish data, they will treat that data as being the way it should be, and you will end up having an algorithm that's learned something that's wrong. And but and the and the the uh, what you would call it the risk you have then is that it always does the same thing. One of the beauties of some of these um, algorithms is that it always does the same thing. So if it if you feed it one pattern, it will always give you the same answer back, right? Unlike humans that can change their minds, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, if you feed it wrong information, if you feed it uh, poor um, patterns, uh, you're going to end up with algorithms and answers that don't really uh, fit what's happening out in the in the real world. And I think that's where that human supervision comes in, where we've got to say, guys, the sensors are great. They're giving us this information. But have we got the correct information about the machine that it's actually um, monitoring? Um, And are we joining that together um, effectively to make sure we're actually really understanding how how our equipment is operating out in the real world? Very interesting. This is a, an area of IoT we don't typically talk about, Peter and Dean. We typically just talk about how great it is to have sensors. We talk about the flood, the deluge, the tsunami, depending on how colorful you want to get, the tsunami <laughs> of data. It's coming, it's velocity, it's volume, it's great. But we don't talk about very often how much CRAP is in that data. And if you're giving the right, if, if you have an answer you think you want, maybe you'll get the wrong answer, your wrong answer, but it's the right answer, but maybe you'll get the wrong answer because it's the wrong data or the right answer because it's not the wrong data. I don't know. There, there seems to be a lot of permutations here, Peter. Th- thank you. Peter, any, any comment on that? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I was going to say that we're finding a lot of um, customers now are recognizing the fact that they really don't know um, a lot about some of their assets and they're actually sending people out into the field and saying hey we really do need to know exactly what we've got out here and going out and collecting information so that when they actually uh, set up this whole infrastructure of smart sensors um, and they're comparing readings they actually know that they're comparing readings for the same types of equipment and they're not comparing the readings for a pump with a compressor for instance but they're actually saying oh uh, I can compare these pumps and I know exactly what sort of pump they are. I know exactly which manufacturer they've come from. I know exactly how they should be performing. And when I see inconsistencies in the performance, I know what I should do. Uh, so that they're now getting to the point where they can trust that information and they can actually take actions that they know will actually um, be the right actions. So that's what we're seeing a lot of organizations do now, spending time and effort going out and making sure that their asset information that they've got in their ERP systems is correct so that this whole internet of things and so on um, gives them the value that they're expecting from it. Thank you. Dean, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on what Peter just added, and then I'm going to pick up a topic from your list. So, Dean, any thoughts about right data, wrong data, right machine, right answer? Dean? Oh, I think the master data is, is crucial. I mean, that's the foundation for everything. I mean, if you don't have the foundation, then uh, I mean, it's like with a house. If you don't have a good foundation and you're building on on the Dean, your voice is fading out. We're having trouble hearing you. I need you a little bit closer to your phone, please. Just a little bit more, okay? Go ahead. Please continue. Okay. Okay. No, I think, um, yeah, the master data is the foundation of everything. And 
you know, we have to get that right and keep it right. That's that's key. Okay. I'm going to bring up a new topic here from Dean's list he gave me before the show. Let's see where we go with this one. He says, businesses must now extend their processes beyond the traditional walls to include the support of multi-channel input, remote workers, external partners, and even regulatory agencies. Dean, tell us more. And how does this relate to our topic about smart machines and smart networks? Go ahead, Dean. Yeah, I think... um one of the things that this opens up is that uh, manufacturers traditionally sold um, their equipment to an operator, and basically that's you know the last time they heard of that equipment. So think of a pump, I mean, or a motor running. I mean, the manufacturer typically did not know what was happening um, with that machine. So the the internet sensors, um, this has opened up a whole new world now where the manufacturers can basically monitor um, that machine um, and um, either provide feedback um, to the operator or what we're seeing is our new business models uh, evolving. Um, So things like um, um, uh, equipment as a service, for example, whereby the, the manufacturer of the machine is actually offering um, the whole life cycle of, of that equipment to the operator, but totally owned by the manufacturer, maintained, monitored, serviced uh, by the manufacturer. And, and this also leads now to an interesting uh, paradigm. Now the manufacturer has to maintain it. Um, they, they start thinking about um, making maintenance easier, whereas in the past, uh, you know, they, they didn't really care about maintenance. They, they cared about how easy it was to manufacture. And typically, they made a lot of money out of um, selling spare parts to operators. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what uh, I think we'll see will be componentized um, um, where you can just basically take out a whole component, just slip it out, slide in a new one, um, because now the manufacturer is having to maintain that equipment. So I think this is something that um, is kind of a side effect of this whole um, IoT um, revolution or evolution. Thank you very much, Dean. Peter Ainsley Hartwell, love to get your thoughts. Some interesting concepts that Dean just introduced for us. Go ahead. Yeah, it is actually. Um, as Dean was talking, I was just thinking, um, if you look at what happens in the military in, in, in particular, um, because of the environment that they op- operate in, this whole concept of componentized um, spare parts, of being able to take a whole um, drivetrain assembly out of a tank and replace it in the field in three hours, as opposed to, well, let me take it back to the workshop and take four weeks to do it. Um, so I think... Uh, we may see exactly what Dean said, that uh, because the manufacturer is now um, going to maybe take on a lot more responsibility for the maintenance, they will actually think about that. And we may see some of these concepts um, that are currently used in a lot of the military operations coming into our day-to-day uh, industrial operations. And remember, of course, a lot of the technology that we're using now started uh, in the military as well, right, with uh, the whole GPS and a lot of that sort of stuff all came from technology that was developed uh, out there for military. So we may actually see a little bit more even of the operations side of things 
uh, that they've been following come into our uh, come into our normal industrial uh, operations as well. So it's an interesting concept that that the, that the technology is going to move the responsibility for maintenance away from operator and out back to manufacturer. Uh, I, I can see that happening. I'm not sure how fast it will happen, um, mm-hmm. but you're seeing it with cars, for instance. Cars are getting smart enough that they actually ring up the, the service center and say, yeah, I'll be in on Tuesday. Um, please book me at 10 o'clock, right? And once we get self-driving cars, maybe they'll actually even drive themselves to the service center um, and get repaired or get serviced. It'll be interesting to see. Peter, that's what the prediction is from, we just did our season ender for our series called The Future of Cars with Game Changers. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I had the privilege of interviewing all, uh, 19 of the attendees at SAP's Best Practices for Automotive third annual conference in Detroit a couple of weeks ago in late September. And we rolled in 12 clips from the interviews I did. And we were talking about where, uh, what are the trends are they monetizable? I just made that. I just made up that that word. Forgive me. And uh, <laughs> what's going to happen with electrification and autonomous? And, and we have a, a a German speaker named Otto Schell, a dear friend of ours on Game Changers Radio, and he calls them autonomous. And I I really appreciate okay. that. It's just an interesting way of looking at the word. Thank you, Otto. Autonomous cars. And and the question, of course, is. When cars get that smart, and, and Dean, I'll ask you to comment on this as well. When cars get that smart and they know their own maintenance schedule, will the car, in fact, drive itself to the mechanic? Or I'm just going to go out on a limb here, guys. Will the car have access to a 3D printer and will order the printing of the part? And no, it won't install it itself, but it will say, okay, we need the top top, uh, top maintenance people at uh, Joe's Garage or Dean's Garage down on Main Street to come out here. And uh, Bob Mechanic, you be here at 10 o'clock and we will have a Bitcoin payment sent to you in advance at your hourly rate. Oh, my. And you show up and we have pre- 3D printed the part that you're going to install in in uh, George the car. Peter, can you see that at some <laughs> point? If you, I'm making this up, but you know what? It may not be that absurd. What do you think, Peter? And then I'll ask Dean. What do you think, uh, Peter Ainsley? So, 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 very, so very, very interesting. Um, I'm not sure that they'll ever get to the point where they'll fix themselves, um, but certainly I think they'll get to the point where they'll be able to say, well, this is what's wrong with me, and please get these spare parts and stuff uh, organized, and, and I need to be fixed by... Monday. So interesting point. I'm actually a bit of a science fiction buff as well. I love reading Isaac Asimov stories. Uh-huh. Right? So one of the ones that you should look at, this whole thing about self-driving cars, uh, way back in like 1953, I think it was, or thereabouts, Isaac Asimov wrote a very short story called Sally, right? And it is about self-driving cars, intelligent cars. Um, and it was actually a very interesting story because it, it actually talked about the relationship um, between the car and its owner. Um, and in this particular case, um, the car turned on some people that were treating the owner poorly, so to speak. Um, so it's actually an interesting thing that this uh, concept of self-driving cars has been around for a while. And as I said, what we considered science fiction when we were growing up is now really mm-hmm. turning into into reality. So for those of our audience that uh, like the science fiction, I can recommend that you actually have a read of that short story, Sally by Isaac Asimov. 
I'm looking it up right now. In the meantime, uh, Sally Shore's story. <laughs> Dean Fit, we'd love to get your thoughts on cars that will order their own repairs or even print them on their own 3D printers. What do you think, Dean? In the near future or not so much? Well, if, if you look at the, the mining industry in Australia, um, you take Rio Tinto. I mean, they all, they operate their haul trucks out of Perth, which is 3,000 kilometers away from the actual mine site. So they remotely control them. Uh, and I mean, they, I mean, some of the advantages of that, they, they're not relying on, on drivers that have uh, been out the night before, maybe had a... <laughs> A Drambuie too many? <laughs> a Drambuie, good. Uh, <laughs> too many, yeah. Good one, good one. Dean, uh, yeah, Peter deserved that one. Go ahead, Dean, continue. And interestingly enough, the people that, 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 are, that are driving them um, in this remote center are, are mainly uh, women. So they're, they're actually you know, seen as being, I guess, more reliable than uh, these blokes out on the mine site. But technically, things like um, they see improvements um, things like accelerating, braking, um, just just leads to uh, improved life um, of the haul trucks. And just going back to my previous point, that this is also done very much in collaboration with the manufacturers of those haul trucks, so Caterpillar, Komatsu, whoever um, builds them. So again, we see this um, collaboration aspect between the uh, manufacturer and the operator uh, of the equipment. Interesting. What do you think, Dean? Uh, that was Dean. What do you think, Peter? Uh, yeah, so uh, one of my early early jobs when I was still at university was actually um, uh, in a mine site uh, maintaining these haul trucks, which are huge, huge machines. And the thought of them being remotely controlled from, you know, 2,000 kilometers away um, and still being more efficient than having a person actually in the ca- cab would have never... Um, occurred to us um, 35, 40 years ago. Now it's a reality, as Dean said, um, and I think it's going to get more and more uh, where uh, where you can take uh, something and do it remotely, um, do it safer, I think is going to be the future for sure. Um, like I said, I don't think that they'll ever get to the point where they'll fix themselves, but they'll certainly be able to tell us what's wrong with them and they'll tell us uh, how well they're performing um, and we'll be able to then use that human intervention like I talked about to make sure that we actually take the right actions to go get them back up to peak efficiency again. There is hope. I appreciate that. Dean, I'm looking at your list here. Let's talk about different formats of information. We talked about data, 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 data. Now let's get a deep dive into what kinds of data. I'm going to read two statements from your list, Dean. I'd love if you would put them together for me and explain. First of all, you say we still today get a lot of information in paper formats. Yes, we do. And that leads me mm-hmm. to your second statement. We can use machine learning to teach systems how to parse the PDF files. Talk to me, Dean. This sounds not evolutionary, but revolutionary. What are we talking about here? Yeah, this is actually based on a, on a real-life uh, example of a customer that came to um, our headquarters in Waldorf. Um, so big um, multinational oil company. So they're, they're building one of the biggest... Um, um, it's more than one refinery. It's an industrial park consisting of eight or nine different refineries and power stations and other other factories. Um, and the, and the construction of this 
is done by um, uh, contractors or EPCs as, as they're known. Um, but they have 30-odd um, package suppliers. So this is you know, people putting together a system uh, of equipment from different manufacturers. So you've got the manufacturers supplying the equipment and all of the documentation um, for these systems and all the spare parts information. And even today, I mean, this is currently under construction, they get that information in, in PDF format. And their calculation was that it would take them three years to basically um, work through all that information, take it off the PDF, put it into Excels, and load it into their uh, ERP system. Oh my! So we we were coming. We came up with the idea that if if we could, um, you know, read the PDF using things like uh, machine learning and, and optical character uh, recognition. Um, you know, looking for keywords to take that information from the PDF, um, make sense of it, um, so that we could populate our equipment records and spare parts record information, and then upload that uh, into the uh, ERP system. So, it's still a huge problem today. Is the different? Um, so, it's not. You know, it might not be real paper, but but just even if it's in PDF, um, this is still. Um, something that um, is still a, a problem. I mean, the, the ultimate solution would be that um, manufacturers supply this information in a digital format from the very beginning mm -hmm. uh, that can be read um, by the package suppliers and, and easily um, transferred to the operators of the equipment. But, but today, that's very rare that that happens, if at all. Very interesting. Um, I'd love to have Peter Ainsley Hartwell take a shot at commenting on this. Peter, do you do you still use paper? Do you still use P PDFs? So you know, the funny thing, uh, PDF was introduced. It's a portable data format. I believe that's what it stands for. And yes. it was meant meant to take files that were created on one platform or the other, typically a, 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 an Apple system or a, or a um, PC system. Uh, and it was meant to be able to take a file and create basically a snapshot of it, not necessarily editable, unless you have special software, but a grabbable, meaning you can copy and paste the content and share it across platforms. So that you don't have to say, well, I created a yep. document, but I can only read it on my back. So I've learned, and I think most of us do who deal with PDFs, that there's a very strange way that the text is collected inside of that snapshot. And sometimes you will highlight over a sentence and it pulls in three paragraphs later and some weird formatting <laughs> and your and and it truncates the line. So if you have sentences that wrap around, you might get them all on separate lines with it's crazy. Peter, I, I'm doing too much editorializing yes. here, but any comments on PDF for, for ERP? Oh, yes. So, so it's the same. If you copy a table out of a PDF and try to paste Ugh. it into an Excel spreadsheet, you'll end up with a with every cell being a different row in many cases. There so, you go. Yes, it's a, it's a bit weird. But I think the, the comment that Dean made is, is absolutely true. In fact, we're doing some work with a um, large German turbine manufacturer right now, um, and they've got like 9,000-odd turbines uh, installed, um, gas, steam, wind turbines installed around the world. Um, and there, some of those turbines have been out there for, you know, decades. Um, and they just, just don't have the information um, the, about uh, the turbine uh, and what, what it, what it, what's been done to it over its lifetime. So we're actually doing some work exactly what Dean's saying. What they've got 
is I've got all of these documents. I've got like a thousand documents per turbine. And they're saying, go through all these documents and tell us uh, what the spare parts are. Tell us what history. Tell us what's been changed out, uh, what's different from when it was originally installed. Um, and we were looking at that and saying, yeah, well, we can actually do it, you know, three years and a lot of people, um, or we can actually use some technology. So we started looking at things like machine learning and the OCR stuff to be able to do exactly what Dean was talking about. And I, and I think we're going to have to live with that for a while. Uh, we have, you know, centuries of uh, collecting stuff on paper, um, handwritten stuff in some cases that it's very hard for machines to interpret, um, that we need to be able to uh, convert over to a digital format that, like you said uh, at the start, Bonnie, uh, we have to provide this information to these smart machines as well. If we can't convert it to a format that they can read, that they can understand, you know, the ones and the zeros bit, um, then we're not going to be able to make use um, of the computing power and the algorithms and all that sort of stuff uh, that we can develop if we can't get the information in a format um, that these machines can, can use. And transform, transforming from paper yep. PDF to that format is key to that. So the whole machine learning can actually help machines learn, which will be interesting. That's a little bit of a tautology. You know what? We're officially very deep into our crystal ball predictions round. And Peter Ainsley Hartwell at Utopia, I'm going to give you a chance to tell me if you've already given me a prediction because that sounded a little predictive in there. Or I can give you 60 seconds for a really tight prediction and I've got 60 seconds saved for Dean Fitt at SAP. So, Peter, why don't you wrap this up with your own prediction? Let's look at 2020. What will change on this topic? Intelligent machines, people, data, good data, bad data, ugly data, PDF data, teaching machines how to be smarter, making the right data for the right decisions. 60 seconds, prediction. Peter, go. So I think two things. Um, one is I think machines will get smarter and they will start teaching themselves how to get smarter, uh, that they will actually say, oh, I need this information. How can I get it? And we'll work out a way themselves to do it. So I think that's what's going to be different in 2020, um, that we'll have machines teaching machines rather than humans teaching machines. And I think the other thing that's going to happen, and this is really going out there, is that the human-machine interface is going to change. It won't be tactile like it is now. I think we will get to the point uh, where we will have that interconnection between machine and human, and we'll read that true cyborg-type um, scenario where we'll, where we'll be um, enhanced by what the machines can do, uh, working with us, not against us, but with us. Um, so no Skynet stuff, right? Uh, we're okay. going to be working with them. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. And Dean Fed, I saved uh, 60 seconds for you. I need a really quick prediction. Dean, can you tell me something about 2020? What will be different? Yeah, I think um, I think already alluded to this, but I think uh, we'll see more and more um, equipment as a service or total service packages, whatever you want to call it, becoming... Uh, more or less standard. I think today that's sort of just at the beginning. Um, and the other thing would be designing out uh, people, um, you know, autonomous equipment. So I think in, in environments like a, a mine, for example, um, this will probably take off quicker than, say, say cars on the road. So um, that would be my two predictions for 2020. Thank you very much, Dean. 
Peter Ainsley Hartwell at Utopia, Dean Fit at SAP. It's been very interesting speaking with both of you. We covered a lot of territory, <laughs> a new topic for Game Changers. I have to do a shout-out to Pamela Dunn, who is the sponsor, one of the sponsors of our partnership series, and Bill Kahn, who helped put together this panel, and everybody who has been tweeting. We had tweets from Inde Gamay, whoever you are. We love to see your tweets. You were tweeting on our last show an hour ago for Game Changers Future of Cars. We appreciate it, and Bill Kahn, and we've got some other people tweeting here so we really appreciate it if you want to tweet about this show or any others on game changer just tweet hashtag s-a-p-r-a-d-i-o it's that simple i'm bonnie d graham and it's time for us to wrap up this party let me give you my call to action and here we go fasten your seatbelt. no it's not the car show but we say that on every show fasten your seatbelt. what are you waiting for go out and be a game changer today just like peter ainsley hartwell and just like dean fit have a great day i'll be back live tomorrow 11 a.m Eastern right here on the Business Channel with a new episode of Coffee Break with Game Changers. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Partnerships, Changing the Game for Digital Transformation, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again on Tuesdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.